Hey everybody, it's Neil Blackman, the host of Florida Basketball Hour. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Florida winning the Charleston Classic, what went right, how the Gators turned their season around, or their November around at least. There's a lot of season left in Charleston, uh, what they can still do to to become an even better basketball team, and uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the Marshall uh, matchup on Friday night. Just want to thank everybody that's listened uh, over the past year, the past few months even. Um, you guys really have uh, made our show a lot of fun to do. Your feedback is really, really appreciated. And, you know, um, I don't think that we ever thought that we'd have this big an audience that just wants to hear about Florida basketball. So thanks. Tell your friends. Make sure you rate us on iTunes. Those ratings actually do matter because of placement. And uh, happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. The Gators go to Charleston, win the Charleston Classic. Eric, kind of like broad overview thought on, you know, what what you thought went right in Charleston. It's as simple as shooting the ball well, combination of things. Uh, and, you know, let's just start there. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it seems like really simple basketball analysis, pretty shallow basketball analysis to just say that, like, hey, Florida's shots fell. But I, I really think that's a lot of the, the story just because I do – I really think, and I mean, I've talked about, uh, talked about it on the podcast, that Florida was generating a lot of open looks earlier in the season. Uh, they just weren't hitting the shots. And uh, I think we saw them get a lot of the, those identical looks in Charleston, and they were hitting them. I mean, the offense, to me, looked – uh, really similar against Miami and against Xavier to what it did against UConn. Uh, but they weren't falling against UConn. Uh, they obviously were falling against Miami. Uh, we were falling again against Xavier. And uh, that just makes for uh, for some winning basketball. I, I think that the way that Florida stayed locked in on the defensive end uh, against, uh, it, you know, against Xavier, like they have a lot of physical, physical guards that can, uh, that can really get in the paint and score there. Uh, Florida defended them well. And then, yeah, on the other end, uh, they were hitting their shots and playing confident. I thought uh, Andrew Nemhart was playing incredibly confident. I thought Noah Locke was playing incredibly confident. Those were uh, those were two guys that maybe weren't playing with uh, a, a ton of confidence in these kind of first games of the season. Uh, I thought that they both looked like uh, the best versions of themselves. And um, obviously, Keontae Johnson's great, but uh, I, I think it was kind of the uh, uh, the change in, in play from from Nemhart and Locke that really kind of turned things around. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought Noah Locke made his first three pointer of the tournament, and I thought it was like just a giant weight off his shoulders. You know, you can't see Noah's got a pretty stoic face, other than when he has that little half grin that he does sometimes. So like, it's kind of hard to like read his eyes and his body language. But I mean, we talked about on this podcast how there were moments, at least one really big moment in the Yukon game where he didn't look like a guy who wanted to shoot at all. And, uh, and you know, he makes his first three point jumper in the St. Joseph's game. And, uh, he's kept it going, pours in 13 in the, in the championship. Uh, and also Noah Locke is as good a place to start as any for kind of one of my takeaways, which is that I actually think this team is, is, only just starting to figure out how good they can be defensively, Eric. And uh, Noah Locke, four steals, just really active, really bothered Xavier's guards. Uh, you could kind of start with him. Yeah, I thought he had an improved defensive effort. Uh, I Well, I shouldn't say effort. I think he had some pretty good effort in some of the earlier games of the season, but but still I think that he got caught, uh, got caught cheating a few times. He's someone who's uh, – uh, kind of knows how to be a bit of a physical point of attack uh, defender, which I, I think is something that Mike White teaches because his guys usually, uh, you know, like Casey Hill and, and Chris Chioza were really good at uh, using their using their bodies on the perimeter. Not like they're super strong guys, but they could be physical. Uh, but doing that, I thought that sometimes uh, Locke kind of got sh- got caught cheating a couple ways and got shifted. And uh, but yeah, I thought he uh, he really kind of competed there. And then uh, I also like I don't know what Noah Locke's wingspan is, but I think he's like a little bit longer. 
than than you think because he's not particularly tall, but he seems to just still get his fingertips on some balls that you don't always expect him to. And obviously that came away with some steals. Uh, also had some uh, some deflections, uh, but uh, which I, I actually kind of like that he he's being a little bit more aggressive. I, I'm not sure if he ever will have the physical tools to be like an elite elite def- like just like lockdown defender. So him being a little bit more of a gambler, uh, knowing that he's got some good defenders around him, I, I think that that kind of works. And uh, yeah, if he could go for these uh, these occasional games where he has four steals, uh, that'd be pretty big. Yeah. No. I mean. Uh it's good to see just him on both ends because I thought he was a guy who his offense kind of impacted his defense uh, in a negative way or his struggles on offense were impacting his defense in a way that was surprising for Noah, who's generally a pretty good defender. Sorry, everybody. I had to shut a door. Um, so uh, the other thing about the final was, uh, and, and we'll just start with the first half. Florida jumps out to a 10-point lead. Um, they really did defend exceptionally well in, in the first half, Eric. Uh, again, kind of paced by Scotty Lewis, I thought, um, which was interesting because Scotty, this was not a good game for him offensively. Like, he struggled. He forced things. But you also saw a player that can really impact winning without scoring. He does that. He gets. Uh, he attacks the basket. Gets an early foul. Nashi Marshall. I thought getting two on him was huge, but by and large, I really felt like this was Florida stretching a lead because they just kept getting stops. Yeah, I do think those fouls on Najee Marshall were huge because right early, the first couple of possessions that Xavier had, it was like Najee Marshall putting a Florida Gator on his hip and getting into the paint and making plays and. Uh, that was something that I was really scared of is, is guys like him that can just get in the paint with their size and, and make things happen. So, uh, yeah, getting him off the floor, getting him out of rhythm, uh, I did think was pretty big. Uh, I didn't think Mar- Marshall had the same kind of rhythm when he came back into the game. So, yeah, uh, Scotty Lewis also, um, you know, now the uh, uh, the best shot blocker on the Gators, statistically. <laughs> I don't know if he's... Uh, like, no. Uh, oh, it's, oh, what do you... Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you got him who's... Uh, in, in block rate and uh, just overall, but you like, uh, well, I guess for, for, uh, sorry, for just like blocks per game. I mean, you've got Scotty Lewis is the best shot blocker. And then um, he's kind of has those big recovery plays, but I think that uh, just, yeah, the way he can kind of pressure and take away, whether it's kind of the smaller speedier guards or, or some of the bigger wings. Um, I thought that he, uh, he was looking pretty good defensively. So uh, yeah, I mean, offensively, you still got the, the shot selection problems, I would say. Uh, something that I thought that, you know, Noah Locke's taking some much better shots. I thought Keontae Johnson's taking better shots. Scotty Lewis still needs to take better shots. But, yeah, defensively, uh, he's kind of uh, – he's, he's a game changer. Yeah, um, you know, I thought Noah took two terrible shots in the game. Um, one, you know what I'm going to say, <laughs> a late game middle of the shot clock leaner uh, that was an air ball. Um, I don't know why he – continues to try to take that shot, but you know, okay. Um, and then what was the, Oh, the other one was the, uh, the, the one on three transition two that he made. Oh yeah. That was, yeah. <laughs> it was so bad. Uh, but it went in. So everybody's like, Oh, that's a shot. I had to laugh. Cause like Debbie Antonelli who had color is, is really good, but I was watching the rewatch of the game and like Debbie Antonelli was like, well, Noah Locke can just shoot that so confidently. Like, it, it's just a shot he's going to take. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm sure the coaching staff does not feel that way. But <laughs> we're uh, we're nitpicking, I think. So what did you see offensively in, in the first half that, that helps Florida at Stimuli to 10? Uh, well, one thing that you always see kind of Florida's offense starting with <laughs> is uh, throwing it into the high post, usually from Andrew Nemhart, and then he – runs off that player and there's a possibility for a dribble handoff there. Uh, but what I thought Florida did really well was like the next action that happened away from the ball. Uh, and that was a lot of, uh, you know, like Keontae Johnson kind of setting a screen for Noah Locke where he can either cut to the rim or, or pop out for a three. And uh, that's what really kind of created a lot of confusion from what is a, uh, what is a good defensive Xavier team uh, that Florida did make look silly in a lot of ways. But I thought that, uh, uh, just the fact that Florida was really cutting hard off a lot of those actions uh, made Xavier suck in. And that's something that like Xavier's a, you know, a pack line defensive team that wants to protect the rim. So they took away a lot of the cuts, but that opened up some of the, 
uh, the open jumpers. And I thought that, uh, especially in the first half, Florida took good shots. And when you take good shots, you're going to make a good percentage of them. So uh, I thought they did. They're just looking a little bit more uh, crisp all the time playing this offense that seemed a little bit shaky when they were first picking it up with all the new pieces. Uh, but yeah, they just seem more and more comfortable out of it, uh, more comfortable making uh, making the right reads. And uh, yeah, I just thought especially these these kind of off-ball actions once the ball went into the high post uh, started to uh, started to really generate open looks. Let me come back to Keontae Johnson in a second, but certainly uh, a little more in Charleston with 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 just some transition offense, the threat of it. I think we talked about it on the Miami podcast, but kind of continued against Xavier where they're pretty simple actions that Florida runs in transition, but they were able, again, to generate a couple quality looks early in the shot clock. Yeah, those uh, those early drag screens, uh, it's funny because it's, it's really – basic it's not anything <laughs> that teams haven't seen it's not it's not hard to see coming it's 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 one of those things that happens right in front of the defense it's not like a back screen or something like that uh but i think that there is just like an element that when you first run back on defense and you identify your man uh you're not in that kind of natural position to think like hey am i in help side here there's just a little bit of indecision and that can lead to uh uh lead to some breakdowns and florida keeps getting those and uh, florida's at the point now where um they are scoring much on a points per possession basis uh, much better in transition than the half court so half court they are at 0.866 points per possession and in transition they are 0.982 so uh, significantly better right now in transition than the half court though um, their percentage of transition uh, the shots they take in transition just continues to go down and down they're now down to uh, 10.6 percent of their shots in in transition so uh, but I think like you said there is a little bit of the threat um, and I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, like, like once again, these like drag screens for like Carrie Blackshear setting a screen for Andrew Nemhart early in the clock, those are probably not logged as transition attempts. Um, they probably like just surpassed the threshold of, of the shot clock. Uh, but it's still like, you know, it's early offense. It's something I like to see. And they still did have a couple uh, transition buckets that's making that shot efficient for the Gators when they do take them. And uh, like you mentioned, Neil, just the, uh, uh, the threat of it is, uh, is, is that that's kind of what Florida needs, even if they're not taking a ton of these attempts. I, I think there needs to be like right. at least something in the back of the minds of the other right. team that uh, that Florida might like to be running. Yeah, no, I think so too. The the other thing that they were able to do pretty consistently in Charleston is score out of the pick and roll, which, um, you know, from my from my lips to God's ears, let let, let that continue. Um, but I thought, especially after Marshall went out and you. You had uh, they had a moment where Tyreek Jones and Marshall were on the bench, and it was Zach Fremantle and Jason Carter trying to deal with Kerry Blackshear, and Xavier just got abused on a couple pick and rolls. Yeah, they got they got caught. Um, got, <laughs> kind of like what I would say too is like especially when they're when a big man gets caught in no man's land, uh, where they're not really taking away the ball handler, but they also are not taking away the pass. Uh, yeah, and I mean another thing too is uh, that I thought Florida did well against Xavier was. Uh, just kind of like we predicted, Xavier's hedged a lot of ball screens, uh, like a lot of the pack line teams do. And Florida was ready for that to, uh, uh, to kind of reverse the ball and get it moving. And that led to some open jump shots. Um, one more stat that I just feel like I say on every podcast, so I just will we'll say it again. Um, as, we tra- as we track the number of open jump shots that Florida is, uh, is taking, Florida is up to 64 points. Oh, I just lost a number. But uh, 60, yeah, 64.9 percent of their jump shots are are open that is a ton so they even against once again and i will remind you xavier is a good defensive team very good and florida just kept getting keeps getting wild shots so i mean i I think i said it back when like the number was like you know 57 percent of florida like florida was getting like 55 percent of their um open jump shots uh or jump shots were open i was like wow this is like an incredible amount of open jump shots so like these are going to start falling for florida and they have uh well now they're up to 65 percent um, unguarded jump shots. So uh, if they can keep doing that, I, I don't see why. You know, you're going to have some cold shooting nights. I don't think it's ever going to be as cold as how Florida opened the season. So uh, yeah, I just <laughs> think that um, this wasn't even like once again. Like I think some people are going to say like, "Wow, was this like a flash in the pan?" Well, like maybe to an extent because yeah, you're not going to shoot 50 percent or higher from the three point line all the time. But if you're generating what is right now 65 percent of your jump shots unguarded. And I bet if you took the Florida State game out of that equation, it would be like 70%. Uh, yeah, that's just like an incredible number and makes me think that Florida's offense is going to keep uh, 
keep being pretty good and have having these good shooting nights. Yeah, no, I think they've got a lot of, I think they've got a lot of room to improve. I was encouraged that Mike White said, uh, you know, that, that the players talked to him after the game and they kind of realized that, you know, Andrew Nimard's comment was, Oh, we still have a lot of, a lot of room for growth. Like nobody feels like they've, they've won anything other than the Charleston classic. And that's good. I have a, you know, one comment I wanted to make to the point of Xavier being a really good defensive team is that it is, it's a, like Florida, it's a very good defensive culture. Um, you know, this is a program that's been in the top 40 in Ken Palm defensive efficiency every season the last five years. Uh, they came into the game 16th the other night. Their team with five top 100 players on their roster because I definitely saw some Hive tweets, oh, Xavier's not that good, to which, like, you know, okay, I mean, like, you're entitled to, you know, say what you want, I guess, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So Quentin Gooden, Paul Scruggs, Najee Marshall, uh, Damir Bishop, um, and Tyree Jones are all composite 24-7 top 100 players, four-star guys. It's a talented team. It's a veteran team. It's a quality win. Uh, Florida got up by as many as 17. And then, uh, you know, I think everybody that listens to us wants to know what happened offensively uh, late in the game. My first comment on that, and I'm going to kick it to you, Eric, but my first comment is to some extent, not entirely, but to some extent, Florida just missed shots. Yeah, to some extent, um, I would say. <laughs> uh, I wasn't super happy with um, – well, I – Actually, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go my first point and then I'll give a second one I can throw back to you. But um, I did think that Florida um, using a bit of clock before getting into their offensive progressions was yeah. uh, not particularly yep. wise just because the thing about Florida's offense and um, like what I will say is like Florida was getting some really good shots early in the game uh, and against Miami uh, by running their offense that usually took like 15-ish seconds to throw the ball to the high post, run off that action, uh, the person who runs off the action sets a down screen, uh, dribble handoff, uh, pin down on the other side. Like there's, that's kind of what Florida was running. And, it, you know, it was taking like 12, 15, 16, 17 seconds, uh, but they're getting a really good shot out of it. So the thing is Florida was running that same offense, which should generate the same shot, but they were burning the first 10 seconds of the shot clock saying like, okay, now we get into our offense. Um, so you burn 10 seconds and then you go into the 15 second offense that gets you a good look. Well, if that first good look isn't there, then suddenly you're at an under five second uh, late clock scenario. So I thought that they needed to like, that's the one thing about playing a little bit like, like I know some people just hate the concept of like any, like hate any concept of stall ball. Um, but I like, I am a believer of like, yeah, like there's times late in the game where like using a good amount of the clock on multiple possessions is, is a wise choice. The thing is that Florida's offense inherently um, moves through its progressions a little bit slowly. So I don't think there's a huge need to like, slow down the offense to start and then get into it. That's kind of my take. So I kind of wish that Florida just went into their normal offense early uh, and just started their progressions. They didn't have to, uh, they didn't have to hold the ball for 10 seconds, to get going. They could start their offense and just go through the progressions. And if nothing's there, they could still move the ball that way. And uh, I, I think they would have had a better, uh, better opportunity. So uh, Neil, you can either talk about that or I will uh, throw it to you to talk about the press break. No, I mean, look, I, I think you're right about – I think you're right about that, and that would kind of be the other point I'd make is, yeah, I mean, just just run your offense. There's not – I do think they take the air out of the ball a little too much late in games. I think they've done it for a couple seasons. Um, that said, uh, like I said, missing shots. I, I, did, I wanted to bring up two possessions in particular because there was one where Andrew Nimhart did a really nice job. Uh, Florida set a little back screen and – and Nimhard got that open three that, that he had made a couple times in the first half, and it went in and out. All right. Uh, and then the other one, they went into the low post at about 15 seconds into the shot clock, made a pass, and then made an extra pass to Keontae Johnson. Wide open three-pointer. He doesn't make it. So, like, I thought those were two excellent possessions. Then again, you also have, like, the Noah Locke, like, floater on the baseline. So, you know, there, there was some bad. Um, in terms of press break, this is an area that I tweeted about, and and I think, uh, I think, and I'm interested in Eric's kind of thought on this. 
first, I think when Trey Man is healthy, he's going to be really helpful in that regard. And I would point to how, like LSU, for example, was almost press proof last year because they had they had Waters and they had uh, Javante Smart, and they were just a strong ass team at at breaking the press. <laughs> but you know, the thing about Trey Man is that he's going to give you another ball handler who's a little faster and silkier that can just kind of either go through it or around it. I do think Andrew approaches those situations a little slower sometimes than I would like if I were coaching him. Like, I think sometimes he dribbles himself into trouble by being meticulous, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I will say one other thing that, like, I mean, I'm sure there's a great deal of thought to it. And um, I, I know why, I, I think I know why this is done hypothetically. Um, but I'm not sure if I love Andrew Nemhart inbounding the basketball in these press scenarios. Uh, Florida had two tough turnovers um, where it was uh, Scotty Lewis and Noah Locke uh, with, on the floor stacking up and then splitting. So one of them was going to get the ball and Andrew Nemhart inbounding it. Um, and two times, like one, it went to Scotty Lewis in the corner and he just looked petrified and allowed both defenders to close in yeah. on him. And then he had a turnover. Uh, Noah Locke. Uh, he actually had some better moments, like looking confident handling the ball, which kind of made me impressed. But uh, he also got into trouble as a ball handler. Um, I, I would think that the idea is with Andrew Nemhart inbounding is um, so if you imagine like Noah Locke and Scotty Lewis kind of standing at about like the Florida like three point or sorry free throw line, um, they split. Andrew Nemhart throws the ball to one of them, and then they reverse it back to Andrew Nemhart, who would now have the ball at the middle of the floor, who can be a decision maker. Uh, I, I would think that that's kind of the thought process behind that. Uh, but those reversals back to Nemhart just were not happening just because I think no. teams are like, hey, we're not going to let Andrew Nemhart like beat our press. Like, let's make Scotty Lewis try to beat our press. So that's uh, that's one thing that I'm like, I, I do really understand it. Like why you do have your best ball handler inbounding the ball so he can throw it in and then the ball can get reversed back to him. Um, but uh, I think some of these teams that are really comfortable comfortable in the press are just going to, not allow that to happen and say like, let's make Noah Locke beat us. Let's make Scotty Lewis uh, uh, beat us. So I, I wasn't, I'm not sure if I like love this press break against a, a ton of teams. One thing I also didn't appreciate uh, is like, there was times like, you know, you were talking about teams being pr that are like press proof because they've got really good speedy ball handlers. Um, well, one thing I didn't love about Florida is I thought that they really like congested their own side of the floor while they were trying to break the press. Like there right. was times where like literally all five Gators were on their side of half trying to break the press. So there was like, it was just a really con like congested floor. So um, like, like I think the teams that are really good at breaking the press, they can really like space out the floor. They have the deep guys that are like uh, underneath the basket on the other side that like makes defenders come out. So instead of like 10 players on one side of the floor, there's like six players on one side of the floor. So that players who can make dribble moves one-on-one -on -one have space to do it. I mean, the way that Florida was breaking the press sometimes, there just like would not be an opportunity for someone who had speed or Andrew Nemhart's ball handling to like make a move just because there was someone within 10 feet of him on either side because yeah. the, the, the floor was so kind of congested. So I'm not sure if that's by design or if it, that was like, like sometimes I think like maybe some of Florida's players were like terrified at this press. So they were like trying to come back to the basketball and make themselves like a safety valve. But the thing yeah. is, if you have everyone doing that, uh, you're actually not helping things out. So I think that just kind of the spacing of the press break might, uh, might've been a little bit off. Right. Like I really do think it's, it's guys were trying to make themselves available. Cause I don't, I don't think that looked schematic. And, and I think, and to your point about Nimhard being the inbounder, that's where I think a healthy Trey man really does help is just cause He's somebody that's going to be much more comfortable with the ball than than Scotty Lewis, like, and, and and so I mean, I you know, I do think that 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 makes a huge uh, a huge difference. We can't finish the Xavier game conversation, I don't think, fairly if we don't talk about Keontae Johnson on the uh, official Keontae Johnson Stan podcast. So, um, gosh, he's good. <laughs> Yeah, I just think, like, he had a couple moments attacking closeouts, um, which I know is, like, my favorite thing to talk about, which is, like, probably funny for some people because it's <laughs> probably pretty lame. But, like, there was just, like, like his ability to attack closeouts, sometimes it was, like, like I mean, if the ball gets reversed quickly and, the, and a player has to make, like, a tough closeout to him, um, that's really hard. 
but there are times where the ball movement wasn't even particularly quick and Florida or and, and Keontae Johnson just like still just like jabbed right jab left and then went right um I thought especially like yeah Zach Fremantle the 6'9 freshman who had to uh play the four at times uh he just like like that was a tough matchup for him and uh Keontae Johnson just getting to the rim getting to the rim Thought he had some key rebounds, and he's just like stringing together more, more and more good basketball games. Uh, and I think the style of his play is just so consistent. He's not like jump shot reliant, which means he's going to have off games. I just think he's such a consistent, consistent contributor. Yeah, uh, my favorite drive was I, it wasn't Fremantle; it was Carter, where uh, he did he got the ball at like half court, and he kind of started. It was kind of like you know, like a car that's like rolling down a hill in slow motion. And like <laughs> Keate, you could tell he was looking to pass because his head's moving around. He's looking at teammates. I think he was just waiting for help. Like, oh, surely they're going to help because this Jason Carter guy can't guard me. And nobody came over to help, so he just blew by him for an easy layup. Uh, and, and then you again saw, that you know, I feel like we talk about how he can play off two feet or attack closeouts like all the time, but that's because he can. And, you know, he had a couple really hard makes um, against a team that's really good inside, a good interior pack line defense where because he could play off two feet, you know, his, the angles in which he was able to shoot the basketball were good angles. Yeah. It's just like crazy that he has that like reverse finish, like, with his right hand where he kept getting these like reverse scoop, scoop layups on the left side of the rim. He just like finds a way to score. And I think it's just uh, uh once again, just like if I'm like one of Florida's coaches talking to some of the younger guards and I just say like, uh, like Keontae Johnson just gets to the rim at will and it's cause he attacks closeouts and it's not because he has like dribble move combinations. So it's just like, uh, like, is there someone like better at getting into the paint than, than Keontae Johnson on the Gators? Like, I, I don't think so. So, uh, yeah, just really impressed with his with his skill set, and uh, uh, yeah, I just uh, once again, I just don't see his kind of style of play like slumping. I mean, I, I just think when you get into the paint as often as he does, uh, you're not as reliant on jump shots. Uh, he's always going to be a good rebounder. Uh, yeah, just lots to like. Yeah, no, uh, it's just an, an incredible, um, an incredible tournament for Keontae, an outstanding final, and. Um, you know, the, the Gators win, and like we talked about before the uh, tournament, I really feel like in a lot of ways it kind of ends up being just a reset for them, uh, you know, because now suddenly we're, we're a lot less worried about the, uh, the fir- you know, the, obviously I don't think anybody's happy about the uh, Florida State loss at home. I do hope that they get into a situation, Eric, where, they value the home floor a little more moving forward. Uh, but the other, you know, the other thing was we kind of saw that, that UConn isn't, uh, isn't as, isn't as bad as we thought. Yeah. I think that that like, uh, hopefully that win, especially just, or sorry, that loss doesn't uh, appear as bad now that uh, you've kind of seen what UConn can be. And it's something that'll be just uh, to watch throughout the years. You know, Florida fans can casually cheer for UConn. Uh, just to make that loss feel not as bad. Uh, but I think one thing too is like, um, even on Ken Palm now, which is, you know, Florida is now 23rd in Ken Palm. They obviously took some hits with uh, some poor performances early. But even as, as things sit now, uh, Ken Palm would suggest that Florida is now going to go 22 and 9 going into, uh, uh, going into postseason play. Uh, and that's even just with their like current projections based on, you know, what Florida has done so far this season, which has been like some good, but some bad. So I'm yeah. just kind of showing that with these wins, like if Florida goes 22 and nine, I mean, that's still like pretty good. But I mean, if Florida does a little bit better, like um, a lot of us would think that they would get it back into form. I mean, uh, that's obviously they can go, you know, 23, 24 wins, something more like that. So uh, yeah, I think that that even just looking at the Ken Palm projections, it just shows that uh, by taking care of business here against some some good teams on a neutral uh, neutral court, uh, yeah, that this things can kind of get turned around. Even though things were pretty doom and gloom to start the year, uh, I, I think that the Gators are going to be all right. Uh, and and just for everybody that that's you know for the oh well, it's not a huge deal to win a holiday tournament crowd. Um, over the past ten years, 
the uh, the team that's won the national title has won a holiday tournament nine of ten times. Um, and among Final Four teams, 78% of the teams that have advanced to the Final Four won a holiday tournament. Um, so it's pretty common. Take for Take last year's national title game if you want. It's a great example of that. The, the 2018 uh, battle for Atlantis champion was Virginia. They played the 2018 Hall of Fame classic winner, Texas Tech. Um, and by the way, the other Final Four teams were uh, the Las Vegas Invitational champion, Michigan State, and the Maui Invitational finalist, Auburn. So uh, you kind of get the idea of, of like what it means. By the way, 85% of the teams that have advanced to the that advanced to a final of holiday tournaments have made the NCAA tournament. That's a pretty darn good hit rate. Um, and by the way, that number could be like a lot higher too. But a couple teams that didn't are like Notre Dame in 2017. They won Maui, and then Bonzi Colson got hurt. Uh, and like you can't ever convince me that that wasn't a Sweet 16 team with Bonzi Colson, Eric. And <laughs> Uh, and, and so on. So, you know, that coupled with the UConn looking like a pretty good team, as opposed to say like Evansville, who's gone zero and three against Division One opponents since winning in Rupp Arena. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Uh, Tanner the Fever on Twitter asked us to rank our worst calls of the tournament. I'll tell you that I'm not going to do that. But I kind of feel like we all survived TV Ted Valentine at the Charleston Classic. I got some good uh, fake selfies. Well, they're not. I mean, they are actually selfies. He just doesn't know that he's in them um, of me with uh, TV Ted, um, which I'll post to the Florida Basketball Hour account pretty soon. But I know that Eric had some uh, listener questions that he wanted to get into. So let's do it. Yeah. So, I mean, uh... I can't uh, can't seem to find the message, but uh, so I'm sorry for for the person who asked this. Uh, but someone wants to know, Neil, um, how you became a Gators fan, uh, and also how I uh, how I became a Gators fan. So uh, maybe you wanna you wanna tell your story first, and then I can uh, I can jump in. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I, I look, um, I I was born into a, a Florida Gators family. My my parents went to the University of Florida. I I grew up in Atlanta. Um, a Gators fan, which is like the worst place to grow up a Gators fan. Um, Cause you know, like everybody loves Georgia. And, uh, but the other thing about me is like, I was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, and my dad my, went to graduate school there. And so the first years of my life, I lived in Chapel Hill. And so like my first real sporting memories are like going to the Dean Dope. Um, and so people are, I was like, how'd you get so into basketball? And like, well, I, well, I'm from tobacco road. So, uh, that's part of it, I think. Uh, but, but that's kind of my, my Gator story is it's, it's a family story. My Florida basketball story, uh, is just, you know, the same thing. Like when I got to Florida, you know, I was one of the people that, that was crazy that, that sat outside for hours to try to make sure I was in the first or second row with the rowdies. Um, <laughs> you know, so there was always, there was always that. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, 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 uh, now I've been, a a season ticket holder for several seasons and a booster and, uh, you know, coach the sport uh, on my own. So I, uh, which I had played for since I was five until I was 18. And then, I didn't try to play uh, club in college. Uh, I had a lot of other stuff going on, but but I definitely you know was involved with with UF and intramurals, and you know pretty nasty crossover still. So <laughs> yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, good on it. This was a uh, this was Gator Mike followed by a whole lot of numbers who asked the question. So thank you. Um, yeah. So, but uh, but props to him who also. Uh, could pick up that you had the Georgia accent and that's why he was, yeah. he was interested by the, uh, by why you were a Gators fan. Um, yeah. So yeah, for me, I mean, some people might know this. I, I don't know, but uh, I think what probably most people know from most of the podcasts is that I'm Canadian and I still live in Canada. I live in Western Canada in a city called Edmonton. 
quite north, uh, super cold, uh, snowing as we speak. Um, and uh, yeah, when I was like 12 years old, uh, there was uh, there was one channel that we had on TV. I don't remember what the channel was, but uh, on Saturday mornings and sometimes the afternoon, they would show SEC basketball games. So I still remember the first time that I like turned on a basketball game. And I mean, like the Raptors are like super not big in Canada at the time. Like the only time they'd show Raptors games was at like 10 o'clock on like tape delay. So like it would be like midnight Eastern and they would show a game on tape delay. And that was about what the, the Raptors coverage was. So I didn't really watch the Raptors even. So there was like very little basketball exposure in Canada. But yeah, there was this uh, there was this one one network that showed SEC games on Saturday. And uh, something else that's also like probably pretty stereotypically Canadian of me is like I am quite like polite. I, I-, I would hope <laughs> um, super not used to like confrontation. So I'm like 12 years old watching these games. Um, both of my parents are pastors at the uh, at different churches, uh, one being the church I grew up at. So I'm like pastor's son, Canadian polite. I, I just could not believe the way that coaches would scream at their players. I still remember vividly the first game I ever watched. I don't even remember what coach it was because I didn't know anything about basketball. Just grabbing his player by the collar of the jersey and pulling him and screaming into his ear and like screaming at the refs. And I could not believe that like people were like talking to other humans this way as my 12 year old pastor's son uh, (laughs) thought, but there was this one coach who didn't do that. Um, and it was Billy Donovan, but so I was just like drawn to drawn to this one coach that like seemed a lot more like the like civilized adults I knew than these other coaches who were crazy. So I just kind of like became a Gators fan. I loved the Gators logo at center. I thought it looked awesome. I loved the student section. I loved the band. And, uh, that was like 2005 at the time. So obviously right after that, they win the championships and uh, yeah, the, uh, the Gator basketball fan in me was uh, just kind of kept going. So that was another thing too, is like, like I didn't know that Florida was a football school. Cause all I knew was the station that showed games on Saturday. Oh, it's amazing. The Florida Gators basketball. So I, so I didn't like, even some people now are like, will talk to me about like, Oh, what was it like watching Tebow? And I was like, man, I like, to be honest, uh, unfortunately I didn't watch Tebow. Like I didn't know that Florida football, like we didn't have college football coverage in Canada back then. I didn't know that, you know, so I'm a football fan now, but like, I really am a Florida basketball fan because Florida basketball was my first exposure to like basketball, the game I now love. And it was also, that's, that's all I knew about Florida. I didn't know that Florida did other sports. So I didn't know anything about college sports. All I knew was this Gator logo at center and uh, this team that I loved watching. So uh, yeah, my first time I shared this story on the podcast a little while ago was 2015 going to Florida. Um, and then I went on my honeymoon with my wife who, uh, allowed me to, uh, or allowed us to delay our honeymoon, um, from our wedding in August <laughs> to, uh, we went on our honeymoon in January because we, uh, wanted to go to Florida so we, we could watch basketball. So we, uh, we went on our honeymoon to, uh, to Gainesville and yeah, those are the times that I've, uh, yeah, that I've been to, uh, been to watch Florida basketball, but yeah, that's my, my long origin story. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, and then, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh and then I just had one more question from uh, that also someone asked why you uh, why you wanted to start the podcast, Neil, and also how you and me met. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so we have Eric and I haven't met. We've talked nope. about nope, uh, and, and probably would have when when Eric got uh, came down for a football game, but I, but I didn't end up going. Um, so we're we're working on that. Hopefully, this will be a, a special season, and we can figure out how to do that. Um, but I. Like I like I like analytics, and I like X's and O's of basketball a lot. Which if you listen to the show, you probably figured that out already. Um, like I, for example, I got really mad at myself because when uh, when Paul Scruggs, who I was certain was going to make the three pointer, uh, and missed, um, <laughs> but I got mad at myself because I thought that uh, that Andrew Nimard went under a screen and. Jared Villamar, one of our uh, longtime listeners, was like, no, I think it was a back screen. And I was like, yeah, I was probably just so incensed from, like, where I was that, uh, yeah, I, I didn't see that right. And anyway, so, like, even, like, little tiny, I just missed that the first time I watched it airs make me mad. That's probably the coach in me, I guess. But um, anyway, uh, I really liked the work that, that Eric did at Gator Country. So I thought, well, who could I get? to come on the show that knows what they're talking about and that uh, would, would uh, offer, you know, 
like a deep analytics dive in, into the basketball team and, and no X's and O's. So I just reached out to Eric kind of on a whim. Hey, do you want to come on a podcast with me? Uh, and, and luckily uh, Eric was agreeable to it. So that's, that's kind of that story. Um, <laughs> lucky for all of us. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of why I wanted to start a podcast. So I guess when you've been a Florida basketball fan for two decades, which is kind of where I'm at now, like from like teenage kid to man in late thirties, um, I think you, one thing that's always bothered me a little bit, Eric, is that I don't feel like, and, and I actually think now it's gotten a little better, but for a while, I couldn't understand why Florida wasn't really considered a brand when they had won national titles and they clearly had a Hall of Fame coach in Billy Donovan and they were going to the like second weekend all the time. And I was just kind of like, what, what is the deal? Like, I get that it's a football school, but it still was really surprising to me. Um, and then Mike White came and, I, you know, I know it's a hot take for people, but I think albeit with with some slip-ups last year and kind of a disappointing season. They still got to the second round, but you get the idea. Um, that Coach White's done a good job of kind of sustaining that, that winning culture. And I just felt like that the, that the basketball program deserved that coverage, that they deserved to have somebody that cared about the program talking about the program. And when I looked around – I saw that Kentucky had one. I saw that Duke had one. I saw that uh, UNC has one. Uh, Xavier is an example of one that has one. UConn. So I was like, man, a lot of these like big time basketball programs they have they have a show for their their team. I was like, you know, I could do that for Florida. There's there's a need for it. Um, who knows? At least I thought there was a need for it, even if ten people listened. Um, <laughs> and and that's kind of how that happened. So. Uh, we we got that going a little over a year ago now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm just glad that people. Uh, there's obviously uh, obviously a market for people <sighs> who want uh, want Florida Gators basketball talk. I mean, uh, something about too. Like I, I shared the story about my first time uh, into 2015 uh, talking about uh, like I, I shared the story in the podcast. But I know that Florida was having a bad season and they were like nowhere near uh, the NCAA tournament. But I mean, I was still just shocked that. Uh, there was still like, you know, a conference game at home and uh, there was like 2000 people there. Um, I still was like, uh, yeah, I was still like kind of interested that uh, that was kind of the Florida basketball fan then. And I feel like it's even a little bit different now. And there's, there's just so much more desire for, uh, for Florida basketball. And I think that's uh, yeah, I'm glad we could at least be a little bit of a part of people, like people tuning into this podcast to hear, you know, me talk about expected shot value and like floater count and yeah. uh, you to talk about X's and O's. So thank you for people for listening. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, me and Neil's first conversation, like, not over like Twitter DM was, uh, was the first podcast we ever did. So, uh, also, yeah, Neil, uh, shout out to Neil for, uh, giving me the chance because I mean, we never even really talked before the, uh, the first podcast, we just kind of gave it a shot and hit record and, and went at it. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was last year. Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty cool. And, and, you know, we kind of, we definitely roughed it out together because that was not an easy team to cover, but, uh, but, but they, <laughs> They ended up, you know, finishing strong at least. So there was, there was some uh, some good stuff in that. I, I want to just take a second to kind of talk about uh, Feast Week a little bit. Really, one of my like I think so. The ten days, nine ten days of Feast Week, plus American Thanksgiving, plus all the football rivalry games this is a great time to be a sports fan. Like it's an incredible time to be a sports fan. This is probably one of the best times in the calendar. But like if you like really big time basketball, like you just had Charleston, you had the Myrtle beach tournament, Eric, we've got Maui. Although I don't like this Maui field. I'm going to be honest. Like it's kind of like, and how, how mad is Maui now probably too, that Michigan state lost, but shout out to Mike young. Um, but you know, you have Maui, you got Atlantis, which is going to get going in a couple days. Uh, and then you've got the tournament, the Disney tournament in Orlando. It's just so, so good. Anything in particular, like, you're really pumped up about this week? 
Yeah, well, I mean, just one note about Maui, uh, something that really sucks for the SEC, or, well, I guess just specifically Georgia, was, uh, like, I mean, they lose to Dayton, which is, like, you know, they got pumped pretty good by Dayton, which I understand, like, Dayton's a good team. Uh, But because of that, Virginia Tech uh, went over Michigan State. Now Georgia has to play Michigan State, so they're probably going to get hammered there. Uh, So they might come away with, like, one win in this Maui field. So, like, uh, a really tough, tough time for Georgia. And also, like, I, I want your reaction to this. I'll be honest, but I, I maybe you saw this. I, I think it's like incredibly cheesy. Like I, I, I thought this was super corny from, uh, from Tom Cream. But did you see that um, now on his rosters uh, that they, he when it comes to the player's position, he for everyone on the roster, he just lists a B for basketball player, and that's him. Like we're playing positionless basketball, and that's like him leaning into that. So he like refuses to put like an actual position for each of his players. So um, that's something I saw from Maui that they just exclusively use B for basketball player as the positions listed for each player. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? That's stupid. <laughs> that's the extent of my thought. I it's the extent of my thought on it. I, I did think it was unfortunate for them that they got their doors blown off by Dayton. And now they've got to play like a mad Michigan state team. Um after like the Tom Izzo apology and all that. Ooh, ooh, you just – you bring up a coach like got me, Jack, to talk about Dan Hurley though. Did, mm. you see, did you see Dan Hurley's defense of Altari Gilbert? No, I did not. Tell me what happened. Okay, so that, that got me fired up. Like that is not stupid. So, you know, a lot of these like message board cowboys, um, which is what I call them, they – uh they were saying, oh, you know, Alfred Gilbert is selfish, and if he weren't selfish, we would have won the, the Xavier game. Uh, but, he, but he takes selfish shots, and he doesn't look to move the basketball. So, like, for those who don't know, Alfred Gilbert was a McDonald's All-American and, like, a top 25 or 20 player, I think. Five-star yes. five star recruit. And basically, like, he's just never been healthy. Like, his shoulders are shot. Uh, like he said, multiple shoulders injuries to both sides. And so Dan Hurley goes to the press conference and reads from one of these message board posters, like <laughs> at the press conference. And then he says, you don't know anything about basketball or our program. There's no need for you to watch the 30 games a year that you watch. Just watch the NBA. You don't care about <laughs> You don't care about UConn, and we don't need you supporting our team. If this is how any of our fans are going to treat Andre Gilbert, then, as if that wasn't enough, he he calls up James Booknight and Josh Carlton to the stage with him, and he says, "Hey, James, if 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 UConn is going to have a great season, who's going to be the key to that?" And James Booknight says, "Andre uh, Gilbert." And then he says, what about you, Josh? Who do you think? And Josh Carlton says, Altari Gilbert. And he says, oh, I guess I guess these guys don't know anything about basketball either, right? <laughs> and uh, that was it. It was awesome. It was awesome. Like, I'll be honest. I wasn't totally sold on Dan Hurley. Like, all the, like, sideline animation and, like, he's just, just a crazy guy from New Jersey. Like, I wasn't sure what a program builder he is. Um and, and, like, one cool press conference doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be that, but I, I was impressed. Yeah, I love that. I was just reading the transcript, too, as you were saying it, and I just, like, perfectly imagined it in his voice. Uh, for those people who didn't see it, I see that uh, Neil also gave you the censored version of what <laughs> what really yeah. said. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of expletives, which made it, like, more amazing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's interesting just because, like, one thing that Altree Gilbert reminds me of from a Florida standpoint and I know it's different because it wasn't like injuries that slowed him down. But like, I, I really think that Casey Hill was like the most underappreciated Gator ever. Like I know he oh, did not turn out to be the player that people thought he would be, but I still think he was awesome. I thought he had an amazing career and I thought he was like incredibly important in his senior year. And I don't think he ever got the respect that he deserved. And he was like a message board. Like he just got pounded on message boards all the time for his entire career. So I'll treat Gilbert's kind of a similar player to me. They even play like a bit of a similar game. And um, it's just interesting. Cause I wondered like, like I bet there were times where like Billy Donovan or, or, or Mike White could have jumped into like 
like like obviously Mike White would never do what Tan really did, but like it would be interesting because I like I'm sure he thinks it sometimes. But when Casey Hill was just getting roasted because he like went zero for one from the three point line and people thought he was terrible because of it, right? Um, yeah, there could have been a lot of like you know I, I it would have been amazing if someone came to his defense, but yeah, it is interesting because I do think that like there are always a faction of fans who don't know the game as, as good as they think they do. And like, heck, I probably don't know the game as good as I think I do. And perhaps like someone could read my right, like someone on the, like Mike White might like read something I write or hear something I say in the podcast and be like, wow, this guy's an idiot. Um, so uh, which, yeah, like I, I just, I do love that Hurley went out and said that I, I do think that's amazing. Yeah, no, it was great. And, and I'm sure that, you know, they might listen to some of my takes and think I'm an idiot too, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great Casey Hill take, by the way. Like, and I, I was like one of Casey Hill's uh, champions while he was at Florida because I just thought he was probably the best perimeter defender in the country his senior year. And so it was kind of like, yeah, take that guy out of the team. It'll be fine, you know. Um, but we, we don't need to litigate that on this particular show. <laughs> um, there's no need to get too deep into that one. So, yeah, I mean, Feast Week is amazing. Enjoy the basketball. Everybody have an incredible Thanksgiving. The Gators play Marshall uh, 9 p.m. on Black Friday. little overview on Marshall. They're coached by, uh, is it Dan D'Antoni? Uh, yes, so. Dan D'Antoni. And his, and his patented T-shirt under the sport coat uh, look, which uh, hopefully will be on display. Yeah, um, well, I got to say, the T-shirt under the sports coat look has crushed the Gators under Mike White because that's the <laughs> Leonard that's the Leonard Hamilton. So Oh, good point. Good point. So you gotta you gotta be like you gotta respect that. Um Marshall's been pretty good under him at, at, and uh Dan D'Antoni uh was a he's a Marshall alum and left the NBA bench to co coach at his alma mater. A lot of people thought that was kind of curious. Uh, they were really good a couple years ago. I think they made the second round of the NCAA tournament, actually. Um, last year, they were pretty good. They won one of the tournaments, whether the CBI or the CIT or the NIT. I don't know. Uh, they won. Yeah. So they won a postseason tournament. But this year, uh, their big problem, and tell me if this sounds familiar, Gators fans, they can't shoot. They're shooting 24.5% from three-point land. Uh, and when you play as fast as they want to play, which should surprise no one if you know anything about Dan's brother, Mike, uh, you know, the more possessions you have, maybe the more points you can score, but it doesn't make you very efficient. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. And uh, you see that the teams that he played, like, uh, that were really good. Uh, they had John Elmore, who uh, I, in a weird while I was like scanning like Italian basketball games to watch, uh, I watched John Elmore <laughs> play against uh, the only Kavarius Hayes the other day in the Italian. Yes. League. So, uh, so yeah, but John Elmore was just like awesome for them, and he graduated last year. So I thought that they'd be like horrendous this year. Uh, they also had a guy named Ajin Paneva, who I think will be in the NBA one day. He was one of the like best percentage shot blockers in the country, while also being like a thirty-seven percent three-point shooter as a big man. So I, I think he'll find a way to to the NBA at some point. So. Uh, from Marshall, that's pretty wild. So, um, yeah, so I thought that they would be uh, pretty bad. Uh, but they, they've, yeah, they kind of played a, played a decent game against Notre Dame, uh, which I, that was the one kind of game that I've watched for them. I'll, I'll probably watch more before Friday. But, uh, yeah, a team that has always really lived at the three-point line and, and play, they play extremely fast uh, and they shoot a lot of three-pointers. So uh, right now when their three-pointers aren't falling, uh, yeah, that could obviously be tough for them. But they do play a little bit of that St. Joseph's-y uh, free and loose offense uh try to get a shot up quickly and uh you know they're they're a team that's always lived there they're missing a lot of their their three-point shooters for that of uh we're successful the last couple of years but uh you got to think that the antonis has recruited some guys that should be shooters so uh they they could come alive so this will be an interesting game because it's another you know really quick playing mid-major that florida put on their schedule and uh considering that florida has had you know their two best offensive games uh, playing another team that's not a great offensive team, doesn't really hang their hat on that end. Uh, trying to get some momentum, or kind of keeping up their momentum, I should say. Like, if they have another St. Joseph's-type offensive performance or a Towson offensive performance, uh, that could be pretty devastating after two of their best defensive games. So I think this is all about just kind of keeping their rhythm and uh, 
taking care of business and uh, making it fun for those who uh, make it out to the game on Friday. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, Sam Vecini did a list of, uh, from the athletic, did a list of uh, the five, five, uh, he did a list of five mid-major players that he felt like were on NBA scouts radar um, and kind of broke down each of their games. The one that he won for Marshall was on that list is Tavion Kenzie. Uh, it's a six, five wing um, can really get to the basket. Uh, does a little bit of everything. Good passer shot 36% from three point range last year, only shooting. And again, another guy He's only shooting 33 this season. That's not a huge drop off, but, you know, his field goal percentage last year was 58.7, which is crazy for a guard. Uh, it's still above 50%, but um, it's seven points lower early in this season. And his turnovers are way up, which means just tells me that he's forcing a lot of things because he doesn't have as much quality around him. Uh, I think it's probably more about that than like all of a sudden he's a turnover machine, Eric. Um, but, he, you know, he's a guy who will challenge Andrew Nimhard. Uh, I imagine that Scotty Lewis will get a lot of uh, a lot of time defending him, and, and hopefully we'll see some Trey Mann, uh, who who I think can guard a little bit too. Well, something that's kind of interesting about the way that uh, well, you know, talking talking about Florida using um, drag screens uh, these last few games. I mean, that's something that Marshall does a ton, and that's kind of how they they play their really quick offensive game. Uh, but they're not really looking to hit the roller. A lot of times, it's getting a screen for the ball handler and they've taken like their pick and roll ball handlers have taken more shots than any other team that I've, that I've looked at uh, this year, um, like 26% of their shots. And oh. uh, so then Kinsey uh, who takes a ton of shots, 37% of his shots are as a pick and roll ball handler. Ooh. And uh, just That's watching, uh, I've been watching all the possessions and yeah, it is like just setting, they said like single screens or double screens for him to just like get into space and pull up. And I mean, not like a super high percentage shooter from there. Cause those are usually uh, tough shots off the dribble. Uh, but he hits some of them for sure. And uh, yeah, it's, he's got, um, he's got more, he's got twice the amount of j- uh, jump shots off the dribble than he has catch and shoot jump shots. So yeah, just a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of jump shots from him. Uh, and he can also get to the rim off, off screen or off screens too. So, uh, but yeah, it's, that's going to be an interesting kind of scout process because he's just at the middle of everything they do, and it all just starts with the ball screen. And uh, that'll be interesting also to see what Florida does from a uh, from a big man standpoint. Like, do they keep uh, do they keep Kerry Blackshear at the five for stretches where he'll be kind of the the big man defending these screener rolls, or do they try to get Omar Payne on the floor to do that, or uh, just to kind of see who they uh, who they trust in that scenario? But yeah, expect a very uh, very healthy dose of screen and roll for uh for kinsey who is probably going to take a, a jump shot off those screens oh yeah i you know I, I don't know i i haven't watched him enough to know if i see a pro but um you know he kind of profiles this one statistically and he's at the heart of everything marshall does should be a game that that florida wins and then the gators will take a week off for exams and uh then head out to play a butler team which um is undefeated and has a chance to be the second team in America with seven wins uh, and no losses. Um, Liberty, it could have been Xavier, but they lost to Florida. So it's uh, it's just Scotty James and Liberty by themselves right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Butler's, uh, I'm sure we'll probably get into another, uh, another podcast with more Butler, but I mean, uh, they played some interesting teams because they played Minnesota, who I think is a, a pretty good team this year, uh, and they played Missouri and just beat them. Uh, pretty well. Yeah, they and, beat uh, them pretty stand- pretty senselessly, by the <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I guess it was a lower possession game that kind of like kept the score close. But yeah, watching it, it's uh, yeah, it was a pretty Butler controlled game. And then uh, they'll have Stanford and Ole Miss before they see Florida. So there's like some really good opponents. Like they played a really good schedule, um, and uh, they've got uh, yeah, they've got a pretty good like you know they're going to start multiple seniors. I mean, Kamar Baldwin, who we saw play pretty well against Florida. Uh, Sean McDermott, another senior. Uh, yeah, and I just think like, uh, oh, and like Jordan Tucker, who like Florida didn't see in the first matchup because he still had to sit out with a transfer situation. I thought he's played pretty well. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, Butler could be a tough game. It's also one that I think is going to offer like a really good resume win if Florida wins. Just because, well, I mean, on the road, of course, but a, 
Uh, I think they're going to end up being a pretty good Big, big East team uh, just with their kind of older guys and Kamar Baldwin leading the way. And uh, it's a tough game, but I think things really like – like if Florida wins that one, then I really think that their, non, their non-conference has been like quite successful because that was one of the like tough road games. Like, uh, like I, th- I think the Butler is better than UConn. I'm interested in what your take is. But, uh, yeah, it's a game that Florida could definitely drop. But, I mean, they're playing a lot better basketball and we'll have a lot of time to prepare. So Yeah, I mean, when I, when I watched Butler last night, they looked better than UConn. They also looked like they're maybe not as good inside as UConn. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'm interested to see them play Stanford. And, oh, by the way, Stanford has already done it. They're the, they are the second uh, team with seven wins and no losses. So Stanford is 7-0. and Liberty, 7-0. and and Butler can go to 7-0 with a dub tonight. They'll also play Ole Miss, as Eric said, in the middle of the week. That Ole Miss team, both Eric and I think, is pretty good, uh, despite kind of what's happened with them in the early season, the one-point loss to Memphis uh, most recently and what was a precious Achua party. Um, so that's, that's our show. Uh, we will be back um, to talk the Marshall game, to talk Butler – in more detail next week. Thanks everybody. And, and happy Thanksgiving.